0: Hebrews eleven thirty-two 32 through the first part of 35. In these verses, we are going to be looking at faith's power. Now, there are two parts, two parts. So we ended at the end of the first part. There is a second part, and it's very different in its appearance. In the first part of this passage before us We read of these great victories, faith's power to do what humanly would be impossible, these great feats. Next week, we'll be looking at faith's power, no less amazing, but the power to suffer what would be humanly impossible. We all would love to be part of that first group. Great victories, great feats, think of Samson and these others that are listed there, but the second group is no less no less important, no less miraculously demonstrating the power of faith. Last week, we kind of wrapped up the section there, the children of Israel entering into the promised land there, are the walls of Jericho falling down. you see. Rahab and her faith are being mentioned there in this passage and how she believed. And then eventually, of course, we see her there in the lineage of Jesus Christ. But as he says in verse 32, And what shall I more say, for the time would fail me. We don't have time to look at all of the great examples in Scripture of faith and this chapter here demonstrating what enduring faith looks like. Remember, the writer of Hebrews is encouraging these Hebrew believers in their faith, and he is saying, press on to the end. True saving faith is that faith which endures to the end. They were enduring persecution. It was going to get a lot worse. The writer of Hebrews is encouraging them to persevere, continue on. And so as we see here in verse 32, what shall I more say? The time would fail me to tell of these men. These men mentioned because of their enduring faith. And this is what God brings to our attention here at this point in this book. Now Look at the names, Gideon, Barak or Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel. And then he just generically says in the prophets, there are so many we could think of. And when we think of these men, some are more familiar than others. But let me, by way of illustration, mention a name, David. When you hear the name David, you think of one of two things you think David and fill in the blank. What is it? David and Goliath or David and Bathsheba. That's what you think of. Certainly. And every one of us, that's, I mean, those are, if you talk to anybody out in the world who has any knowledge, whether or not they're A believer, if they know anything of the scripture or of David, they will either tell you, yeah, David and Goliath are David and Bathsheba. And you know, when we think of these men, it's easy for us to find their faults. Samson, that guy had some faults. David, certainly. And certainly their faults were not acts of faith. We do not read in here, by faith, David went after Bathsheba. No, that is not what the scripture says. And of course, their faults are not for us to follow. They're actually beacons of warning in scripture. But here, even in the midst of their faults, God gave them faith to accomplish that which was not possible in the arm of the flesh. God calls us to remember in this this passage before us that which pleases Him. What is it that pleases God? Well, hark back to verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that, or please Him, for he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. And so as we look at these men, yes, they were men with their faults, but they were men whom God gave faith, and by faith, they brought glory to an almighty God. And I'm just going to give you the punchline right now, so you can be thinking about it throughout the message. If God uses any of us, he uses us in spite of our faults and anything that is pleasing to him will be done by the faith which he gives us. And we tend to think of these Old Testament or even the people like Paul, the New Testament, we just think of these lofty men of God who just are up on these pedestals. But you know, folks, they walked on the same earth as we did. They put their robe on one leg at a time just like we do, right? Okay, They they had faults just like you and me. They had the same flesh, the same temptations, for the Bible tells us that there is no temptation taken us, but such as is common to whom? Paul, David, Samson, all of them. Common to men. But God is faithful. Will with the temptation also provide a way of escape that you may be be able to bear it. So, note what God brings to mind about these men. And as I say that, I was called, it, these verses came to my remembrance. I want to share them with you here at the outset. David, we'll see him in this chapter. And what was David's prayer to God, if you'll recall, back in Psalm 25 and verse 7? David said this, back in Psalm 25 and verse 7, Remember not the sins Of my youth. Remember not the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to thy mercy, remember thou me for thy goodness' sake, O Lord. That is a precious verse. You know, someday, if you're a believer, you're going to stand before God. And just like here in Hebrews 11. What does God call to our remembrance about David? His faith. What do, you God, what do you want God to remember about you? How do we remember people? Well, <laughs> 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 oh yeah, remember him. Oh, you know, but you know, what does the Bible talk about love? Love thinketh no evil. And here, David, in Psalm 25, verse 7, remember not the sins of my youth. The great thing about our forgiveness is the Bible says that God has taken our sins and He has cast them as far as the east is from the west. He is not going to bring them up against us. That is forgiveness. And so as we look at faith's power, There's kind of a subplot even going on in here that's not mentioned, but we think of failures versus forgiveness and restoration in the lives of these men. Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 13. He goes through this, his thinking there, Nehemiah chapter 13 and He is thinking about what he's done. He's come back to try to restore the land that has been savaged, torn apart. And he says in verse 14, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and wipe not out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for the offices thereof. He goes on down in this chapter, verse 22. He says, And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves, that they should come and keep the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of thy mercy. And then in that same chapter, verse 31, the very last verse of Nehemiah, Nehemiah says, And for the wood offering at times appointed, and for the first fruits, and then he says his last sentence, remember me, oh my God, for good. Remember me for good. Remember when I was speaking at my dad's funeral years ago, and that verse had stuck out to me, and I said, you know what? When I remember my dad, I don't think of his faults. I remember him for good. And all the wonderful things that God gave through my father. You know what? Here is Nehemiah. God, yes, I'm faulty, but remember me for good. Remember me for good. Of course, like David say, If thou shouldst mark iniquity, who shall stand? If there is not forgiveness with the Lord, none of us can stand before him. If He is going to hold every one of us accountable for our sins, there's none of us that will be able to stand before Him, but that's why Jesus Christ came. Now let's look at this passage. That's kind of a preface. We see here Gideon, and in Judges, chapters 6 through 8. We see there the story of Gideon. He starts here in the book of the Judges, just after Joshua. Of course, he's going chronologically in this chapter. We've just come into the promised land in the book of Joshua. He's proceeding on here into the book of Judges. And there's Gideon. We all know the story of Gideon. I don't need to recount all the details of the story. The world's most unusual battle plan. But here's Gideon. And he's not necessarily courageous, just an average Gideon. Not Joe, Gideon. And in chapter 6, in verse 11, it says, "...there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was in Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash the Abiezrite, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the wine presses to hide it from the Midianites." So here he is and he's got some grain. The Midianites have come down into the land and they are just really ravaging the land. They're taking all the crops. And so he's got some wheat and he's hiding out by the wine press, which is not usually where you'd find wheat. And he's over there threshing it, hiding, trying to keep that food away from the enemy so he can feed, his, feed the family. And an angel of the Lord appears in verse 12 and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Now that does cause me to smile. There's a guy hiding out with his wheat, trying to sneak it around the Midianites. And the angel comes down and salutes him with this grand title. I mean, just mighty man of valor, hero, you know, already. And um, Gideon looks at this individual. and He says, oh, my Lord, if Jehovah, or the Lord, that's the word there, if Jehovah be with us, then why is all this befallen us? Where be all his his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Well, where is is God? The Lord is with me. Well, that's nice. But look at the situation we're in. Of course, verse 14, the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? So here he receives the command of the Lord. This brings to mind, remember again, what is faith? Believing God's word. Faith is simply believing God's word. So what does God tell Gideon at this point? He says, you are going to save Israel from the hand of the Midianites, have not I sent thee? And of course, Gideon doesn't really realize at first who he's speaking to. In verse 16, or well, verse 15, he says, "Oh my Lord, how shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. I'm the youngest kid. I, I'm, I'm out here doing the threshing, and uh, we're a poor family. Why me? Who? You got the right guy. And the Lord said unto him, "Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man." But you know, Gideon, he is—he's weak, just like the rest of us. He's hiding when he receives his call. He's somewhat doubtful, and in verse seventeen, he says, "Well, if I found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that that you're really." You're speaking with me that this is real. I'm not, you know, I pinch myself later and wonder, was this real? Show me a sign. And he goes and prepares some food. There's a, um, the angel of the Lord in verse 21 touches the end of the staff to the food that he brought up out of this rock, and fire just came out of the rock, consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. And then the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. And then in verse 22, and when Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said unto him, Peace be unto thee, fear not, thou shalt not die. And then, what does he do? Well, we see that in the next verses, his family was, there was idol worship going on. In verse 25, it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, Take thy father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath, and cut down the grove that is by it, and build an altar unto the Lord thy God on top of this rock in the ordered place, and take the second bullock, and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove, which thou shalt cut down. Wow. This is, he's the youngest. He's just been given command to take a bold step. And what does he do? He does it. He goes and cuts down the grove, builds up an altar, and the next day, well, the men of the city came and said, who did this? Verse 30, the men of the city said unto Joash, bring out thy son that he may die. He hath cast down the altar of Baal, and because he hath cut down the grove that was by it. Well, his father wisely said, well, listen, if Baal is a god, why don't you let Baal defend himself? <laughs> and Therefore, that day in verse 32, they called him to rub out Jerry Bale, saying, let Baal plead against him because he had thrown down his altar. And so here he goes. God has called him to defeat the Midianites. And there were many Midianites. At the end of the chapter, we see him again. He's hesitating. He's, he's not sure. You know the story there of the fleece takes the fleece. In verse 36, Gideon said unto God, if if thou wilt save Israel by my hand, as thou hast said, well, behold, I will put a fleece of wool in the floor. And if the dew be on the fleece only, and it be dry upon all the earth beside, then shall I know that thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said. Well, and it was so. For he rose up early in the morning and thrust the fleece together and wringed the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Well, that's enough. Get on with it, Gideon. Uh, but wait, maybe somebody came and spilled some water. on Ah! Uh, uh, and Gideon said unto God, Let not thine anger be hot against me. Be merciful, and I will speak but this once. Let me prove, I pray thee, but this once with the fleece. Let it now be dry (coughs) only upon the fleece. And upon all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, for it was dry upon the fleece only, and there was dew on all the ground. (laughs) You know, you feel for this guy. I mean, he has just been called to beat Midian. And... What I find interesting, and I'm not going to make much of this, but back in, back over in verse 16, he says, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. Well, we know he didn't do it by himself. And I've always wondered, I wonder if Gideon would be a little more courageous if, he just, if God had used him as one man. Be that as it may, we know that he used 300. But here's Gideon it's was while he was hiding. He was, he was doubtful. But then we see, even in the end of his life, I'm going I'm to skip the battle. I'm going to go to the end. We know he had a victory. But at the end, in chapter 8 and verse 27, Gideon took this gold and made an ephod thereof and put it in his city, even in Oprah. And all Israel went thither, a-whoring after it, which then became a snare unto Gideon and to his house." We even see the distraction of idolatry there, after the victory. But what does God call our attention to? Gideon believed what God said. And in chapter 7, we see him gathering the men of Israel together, start out with far too many, the Lord whittles it down, and finally he has 300 men. There must have been at least probably a million Midianites. Talks about the host. They're like insects just covering the land. And Gideon believed God and he went to battle with 300 men, trained and highly skilled in the art of lantern holding and blasting on bugles. And that was it. And they all surrounded the camp, and you know the story. Of course, the night before the battle, God said, listen, if you need some encouragement, go down and just listen. Listen outside of one of the tents to what they're talking about. And and the guy's talking about his dream the night before, how his tent was destroyed by this big loaf of bread. And the guy said, well, it's Gideon, and he's going to beat us. And Gideon was very encouraged. But by faith, what happened? Gideon and 300 men went out and obeyed God's command. And God brought about an incredible victory. And the children of Israel were delivered from the Midianites. And here we see the power of faith to accomplish that which was humanly impossible. And God got the credit. God got the credit. And remember this, folks. God, let me just let you in on a, a tip. God really enjoys doing things when he gets the credit. Why do you think that Gideon didn't go out with 30,000 men or 10,000, but rather 300? Because the odds were so ridiculous that Gideon could not take credit for the victory. And God got the glory. And it's one thing when we started this church years ago, I said, God, I pray that you will build this church in such a way that I cannot take the credit. This is your church, not mine. And I'll never forget that years ago when I was in surgery for all those months and out of the pulpit and sick, and I was, when I first went in, I was so concerned of what's going to happen to the church. When I finally got out of the hospital, it had grown more while I was in the hospital than when I was in the pulpit. And I was like, ooh, ouch. <laughs> I thought, well, Lord, thank you. Praise the Lord. I think I'll just go back to the hospital and watch the church grow. <laughs> anyway, But the Lord has ways of doing things and that is what the Lord delights to do. He likes to do things in such a way that he receives the glory because he will not share his glory with another. Let's move on in this passage. So here was Gideon. Yes, he was a man that is mentioned in Hebrews 11 as a man of faith. But he was a man with weakness, just like we are. It goes on and mentions the name of Barak. You go back to, if you go back, now this one's not in chronological order. If you go back in Judges to chapters four and five, we read the story of Barak and one other character. And her name was Deborah. And she was the judge of Israel. You know, that always kind of perplexed me when I would read this in Judges. How on earth did Deborah get the job of being a judge? And then I realized what the problem was. And let's see if you can find it. In Judges chapter 4, we begin at verse 4, and it says, And Deborah a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time. And she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah, between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. And she sent and called Barak, the son of Abinoam, of Kadesh Naphtali, and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali, and of the children of Zebulun, and I will draw unto thee to the river Kishon Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thine hand. And Barak said unto her, If thou wilt go with me, then I will go. But if thou wilt not go with me, then I will not go. You just have to read that in that tone. Sorry. And she said, I will surely go with thee, notwithstanding the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honor. For the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. (laughs) Now, Why was Deborah the judge of Israel? Because this was a time in Israel where there lacked leadership. God's design was not for we don't read any you know the kings of Israel they weren't women. Now there were times where there were queens in charge and it was a mess, but God had designed the man to be in a position of leadership, and that is not male chauvinism. And Deborah was in charge because there were no men willing to step up and take the leadership, and Barak was no exception. Deborah says, I've got the word of the Lord for you. he says, what is it? Well, I want you to get 10,000 men, you go up there, and I will bring, I will bring the army to you. Y- y- Sisera and that army? You mean the, the, the one with 900 chariots of iron? Yes, he had 900 chariots of iron. In 20 years, he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. That army, yes, I'll bring them to you. You don't have to go in you just be up there. They'll come to you, and you'll beat them. And, uh, well, um, you better go with me. If you're willing to go with me, I'll trust your faith, because if you're just sending me, then how do I know? Uh, if you'll go with me, I'll go. Wow. She goes, Sure. I'll put my money where my mouth is. The Lord spoke to me. I'll go. But you're not going to get credit for it. A woman will. Ouch. That just kind of stings, doesn't it? That's a stinging rebuke. It's subtle, but it's there. And you know the story. So here's Barak. He lacks leadership, but he did believe the word of the Lord. He actually did go. He went. And what happened? Well, there was a great victory. They destroyed the army, every one of them. And the last man standing was Sisera, and he took off running as fast as he could. And he finally came to this tent. And he went inside and says, I need to be hidden. And, of course, you read about who it was. It was the wife of Heber the Kenite, which was one of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. He had separated himself from the Kenites. He pitched his tent in the plain, which is by Kadesh. Anyway, so he comes, Sisera comes to Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, in verse 17. There was peace between and the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said, come on in, fear not. And he came in. He said to her, give me, I pray thee, a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And she opened a bottle of milk and gave him drink and covered him. And he said unto her, stand in the door of the tent, it shall be if any man Doth come and inquire of thee and say, Is there any man here that thou shalt say no? Of course, he was exhausted, so he lays down, takes a nap. And then Jael, Heber's wife, took a nail of the tent, took a hammer in her hand and went softly unto him and smote the nail into his temples and fastened it into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary. So he died. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said unto him, Come, come, I will show you the man whom thou seekest. When he came into her tent, behold, Sisera lay dead. And the nail was in his temples. Now, this is a very, very um, sterile way of putting it. That made a mess. And that woman, boy, she was she was made of something. Took a nail and just nailed this guy's head to the floor. Wow. Anyway. And here it was, a great victory. Dramatic. And kids never forget these stories. J.L. and the Nael, you know, and there was <laughs> Sisera. But he believed the word of the Lord, and there was a great victory. And the whole next chapter, chapter 5, then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day. saying They had to sing this great duet. And they sang praise to the Lord for the victory. Well... Chapter mentions Samson. And if we say the name Samson, Samson and? (laughs) Samson and that Philistine woman. Yeah, Delilah. Do any of you know anybody named Delilah? I wonder why. Well, here in Judges chapters 13 through 16, there are four chapters, four chapters given to the life here of Samson. And, of course, we see his miraculous birth. He was going to be a Nazarite from the womb, separated unto the Lord. No haircuts, no wine, no fruit of the vine. And he was going to be reserved for the Lord his entire life. But what was his weakness? Well, in chapter 14, Samson went down to Timnath, the town of the Philistines, and he saw a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and mother and saying, I have seen a woman in Timnath of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me to wife. Now, kids, i just tell you something right here. This is not the way to find a spouse. Mom and dad, it's downtown and I saw this woman. Ho, ho, ho. Get her for me to wife. I want her. Well, and his parents said, uh, Well, uh, just a minute, Samson. Is there never a woman among the daughters of thy brethren, among all of thy people, that thou goest to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said unto his father, Ug. just, just, Ugh. <laughs> I just get this dumb. You know, uh, yeah, he, he, says, he says to his father, Get her for me for she pleaseth me well. That word means she looks good. Talks about pleasing the eyes. Now, I won't recount a long story, but I do remember telling my dad at one point, Dad, I said, I only know what looks good. But you and Mom have been married for X amount of years. You find me a wife. I said, I'm sick of this dating thing. I'm not, I've, I need to be focused on what I'm doing for the Lord here. I'm not interested. You find me a wife. And you know what? Samson never got to that point. He said, I like what I see. It excites my flesh. That's what I want. Samson was ruled by his flesh. And that was Samson's greatest weakness. And it became his downfall. And of course, the dramatic story about this woman and he was going to get married and then you know, she was killed and then he, then he was going to get revenge and then they kind of get revenge and then he came in and got more revenge and just back and forth, back and forth in these amazing feats. And But here was Samson. What did he do? Well, he fought for Israel. He fought against the enemies of the Lord and the spirit began to move him. It says back in chapter 13, um, 13 verse 25, And the Spirit of the Lord began to move him at times in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshdale And of course, the, it goes on to tell, and you know many of those exploits. Samson was a judge, and he terrorized the terrorists. He gave the Philistines what for? He gave them a hard time over and over. And comes to the end of his life, and the sad thing was he had, you know, been in with this Delilah, who did not love him, did not care about him. In fact, she'd been offered money to find the secret of his strength. And Samson kind of toyed with that. He says, oh, this will be kind of fun. Oh, the secret of my strength. Oh, yeah, yeah. I eat Wheaties for breakfast. No. He says, you know, if, if you'll bind me with certain cords, a special kind of you know, green cores have never been used. I'll be weak as every other man. And so what'd she do? She did just that. Now, folks, this doesn't take a whole lot of sense. But if the woman you like does what you said would destroy you, is that not a problem or a conflict of interest? Samson didn't get it. He just looked at the next day, oh, Phil pfft, pfft, flex his muscles and pow, off went those ropes. Oh, Samson, come on, you lied to me. Okay, okay. Well, if you do these kind of ropes, and you know the story, and then she bound him with those ropes. She is trying to find the secret of his strength. She's trying to destroy him. She's been offered a lot of money. And Samson thinks it's a joke. And then it gets even closer. He says, well, if you'll, if you'll weave my hair into this you know, a loom, then I'll be like any other man. And she does it. Still, he doesn't get it. He gets up. Philistines are pining. He gets up, rips his head out of the loom. The loom parts are hanging off of him and everything. And he goes out and he whips up on the Philistines. And she just cries. You don't love me. Oh, and the woman's tears. And Samson was a sucker. And he said, well, you know, actually, if you've noticed, my hair is kind of long. The reason for that. There's never been a razor on my head. And if my head is shaved, I'll lose my strength like, just like any other man. What did he think she was going to do? Well, guess what she did? She shaved him the next morning. Hey, his Philistines are upon you. He gets up and, oh, I don't feel so good. And they caught him. And not only did they catch him put out his eyes Samson's problem was his eyes God took care of that problem and put out his eyes and then Samson was sold into slavery and he ground meal like a donkey for the Philistines and they thought that was great sport of course you know the end of the story comes to the end of chapter 16. They're having this great feast to their god, Dagon. That was the same god that um, fell over when the Ark of the Covenant was moved into the same house, into the same temple. Next day, the Dagon fell over in its hands. They must have glued him back together. You know, anyway, he was fixed up um, at this other time. But here, they, they take Samson. They're having this great feast. They said, hey, let's bring out Samson. Let's, you know, put a funny wig on him, a red nose. Let's make him a clown. Let's have some sport with this guy. Let's bring him out. He was, you know, he was such a terrific enemy. And look at him now. We've got him. Well, one thing they weren't too careful about, his hair had started to grow again. But it comes to the end, and they brought him out for sport. Verse 24 said, "Then when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God hath delivered into our hands our enemy and the destroyer of our country, which slew many of us. And it came to pass when their hearts were merry that they said, Call for Samson, that he may make us sport. And they called for Samson out of the prison house, and he made them sport, and they set him between the pillars. And Samson said unto the lad that held him by the hand, Suffer me that I may feel the pillars whereon the house standeth, that I may lean upon them. Now the house was full of men and women and all the lords of the Philistines were there and they were on the roof about 3,000 men and women that beheld while Samson made sport. Folks, this was a large building. I don't know how many were inside but there were at least 3,000 on the roof. Samson is down there and what happens? And Samson called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me. Remember me, I pray thee, and strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once, O God, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars upon which the house stood and on which it was borne up, of the one with his right hand and the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might, and the house fell. upon the lords and upon all the people that were therein so that the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life and his brethren and all the house of his father came down and took him and brought him up and buried him he had judged Israel for 20 years sad ending wasn't that old but what did he do even at the end of his life he called out unto God for strength and God gave children a visual deliverance. Jephthah. Jephthah, Judges. Chapter 11 through chapter 12 and verse 7. Jephthah is quite an interesting character. He's not someone that you'd want your children to hang out with. Well, in fact... He got run out of his own house. Jephthah, chapter 11, verse 1. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, and he was the son of a harlot. He was illegitimate. Gilead beget Jephthah. And Gilead's actual wife bare him sons. And his wife's sons grew up, and they thrust out Jephthah. He's the illegitimate one. And they said unto him, Thou shalt not inherit in our father's house, or thou art the son of a strange woman. Get out of here. And they ran him off. Then Jephthah fled from his brethren and dwelt in the land of Tob. And there were gathered vain men to Jephthah and went out with him. Jephthah, he really had a rough start. And then... But he was—he was, he was a, listen. He was no wimp. He was a tough guy. You don't live in a house of boys and be the illegitimate one to get kicked out without having some some kind of toughness. And he gathered to himself a rough crowd. He was kind of a ringleader of a tough gang, might say, vain men, is one way of putting it. And they went around and doesn't exactly say what they did, but they had a reputation for you know winning, being tough. In fact. Well, it was so that in the process of time, the children of Ammon made war against Israel. And when they did, says the elders of Gilead, went to fetch Jephthah out of the land of Tob. At a meeting together, they said, we need a tough guy. We need somebody to deliver us. We need somebody that can fight. Hey, remember Jephthah? Oh, yeah. I've read about him in the paper. (laughs) He's got quite a reputation. Hey, let's get him. Maybe he'll help us. So they sent to Jephthah. Verse 7 says, Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, Did ye not hate me and expel me out of my father's house? And why are you come unto me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, Therefore we turn again to thee now, that thou mayest go with us and fight against the children of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. He says, Oh, really? If I win, you'll make me the head? And the elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, verse 10, The Lord be witness between us, if we do not so according to thy words. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and captain over them. And Jephthah uttered all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. And then, of course, Jephthah, the spirit of the Lord, came upon him, verse 29. And vowed a vow in verse 30. Jephthah had a weakness, vain companions, not only that, he makes this rash vow. Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, that shall surely be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. There we go. And He makes this solemn vow. Kind of a rash fellow, but he is making a deal with the Lord. Well, he passes over, and the Lord delivers Ammon into his hands, and he smote them, and they were subdued before the children of Israel. And in verse 34, He came to Mispa unto his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances, and she was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter. It came to pass when he saw her that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low. And thou art one of them that trouble me, for I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. And she says, Well, my father, if thou hast opened thy mouth unto the Lord, do to me according to that which thou hast proceeded out of thy mouth, for as much as the Lord hath taken vengeance for thee of thine enemies, even of the children of Ammon. Now, I'm impressed by the faith of the daughter. She says, Well, Dad, you made a vow. And God answered your prayer, you better keep your end of the deal. And she knew what it was. Verse 37, she said, Let me do this thing. Let me alone two months, that I may go up and down upon the mountains and bewail my virginity, I and my fellows. And he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months. And she went with her companions, bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. It came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father who did with her according to his vow which he had vowed. It says, and she knew no man. She never had the opportunity to be married. She was dead. He burned her with fire as he had said. There are some who say, oh, Couldn't have happened. God would not have allowed that to happen. Have you read your Bible lately? This is a rash vow. This is not something to copy, but it was quite a statement. The condition there in Israel. And look what it says And it was a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days. In a year, they proclaimed a, a memorial for her. Why would you proclaim a memorial, a memorial for a girl that was just, well, she just had to be single the rest of her life? You don't think there were other people in Israel that were single? Was that something to mourn? No, they were mourning because she perished, and the Scripture says that he did unto her according to his vow. A sad, sad story. But God... Gave the victory. Jephthah. David. Of course, there's so much about David from First Samuel chapter sixteen all the way through his death in First Kings chapter two and verse eleven. When we think of David, like I said, what do you think of well, David and Goliath? I mean, that's just one. And there, David went out and. I mean, um, when I think of David and Goliath, I actually think of my son, Stephen. He's at college right now, and his roommate is seven feet tall. And Stephen is not yet, he's not quite six feet tall. (laughs) So There's a Goliath, he has to duck down, he comes into the room, he's got a a very tall roommate, (laughs) he's on the basketball team, but he's a seven-footer. Here's David, he looks out there and Sees this giant coming out and making fun of the God and all the God of Israel and all of the army of Israel just sitting there just shaking in, their, shaking in their boots, looking at this hulk of a man. And David walks up and says, "How long are you going to tolerate that guy saying that stuff?" <laughs> Somebody ought to go take his head off. Is there not a cause?" He's like looking around and goes, "What's wrong with you guys?" Of course, everybody's looking at David. So, <laughs> his brother got a little bit irritated. Him. Well, you, just, you little smart out kid, you came out here to see the battle. Why aren't you watching the sheep? You know, David was no slouch as a shepherd. He killed a lion and a bear that came after the sheep. So, you know, and here's David. And the word got back to the king hey, there's this kid that just showed up, and he thinks somebody ought to go take on that Goliath. Saul says, well, bring him here. Let me see him. Here comes David. David said to Saul, why is not somebody got him? Why don't you guys go out and get him? He goes, I've killed a lion and a bear and took the sheep right out of its mouth. And Lord, help me. Is there not a cause? I'll go take him on. Saul says, well, but he's a man of war from his youth and you're but a youth. Here, at least take my armor. <laughs> go ahead, but take my armor. David tries on the armor and it doesn't fit. David said, I haven't proved this. I haven't practiced in this. I he goes, I've just got a sling. I'll, I'll take that. So David he goes out. Goliath's out there mouthing off to the children of vision. How comes this, this shepherd boy grabs some stones, puts them in his pouch, and heads towards Goliath. And you know the Goliath, he's like, looking down at this kid, I'm gonna feed you, you know, I'm feed you to the dogs. And David, he is not daunted. He looks up and says, I'm gonna feed you to the birds. He goes, this day, the Lord's going to deliver your head into my hand. And he didn't run away from Goliath. He ran towards him. And while he's running, he puts a rock in his sling, and he starts slinging it, and sure, if he lets it go, and where does it hit Goliath? Right in the smack dead in the center of his head, and he falls down dead. And then David climbed onto his back, pulled his sword out of his sheath, and that was some sword. We we'll read about it later. And he chopped off Goliath's head, picked up Goliath's head by the hair, walked back to camp to show Saul. All in a day's work. I mean, hey. And the children of Israel are just there. After they picked their jaws up out of the dirt, then they chased after the Philistines and had a great victory. But what had David done? He trusted the Lord. He says, listen, there's a cause. This is the cause of the Lord. This is his name that's being mocked here. What are you doing about it? God gave him a great victory. Verse: David was a man with feet of clay. David was a sinner. David turned out to not be that great of a father. He had some serious family problems. Serious family problems. He sinned. But you know what? God calls David a man after his own heart. What would God say about you? How will you be remembered? A man after God's own heart. Well, how could a man who committed murder, who who sinned and committed adultery, how could he be a man after God's own heart? I mean, look at the evil. You know what? David sinned, but when David was reproved for his sin, he confessed and repented. Saul did not. Saul blamed and pointed the finger. And you know what? Every one of us can be a man after God's own heart, if we'll just repent. Repent. Own up to what we are. We're sinful people. David repented. God was very gracious to him, David. And then, of course, he mentions Samuel. Samuel, what a what a good guy. Samuel the prophet just just kind of kept going and kept going, and you know I think of one of the diff- most difficult things he had to do is after he had anointed Saul, find out that God had rejected Saul, and now he has to go anoint David to be king while Saul's still king, and that kind of puts you in a bad position because usually a king doesn't like to have a you know king junior coming up to fill his throne when he 's still king and and but Samuel obeyed the Lord. And Samuel judged Israel. Samuel tried to point Israel and said, listen, the Lord is to be your king, not Saul. The Lord is to be your king. Samuel, he wasn't a very good father either. His sons took bribes. They're Democrats. No, they were were just not honorable men. And they took bribes and the children of Israel said, no, your sons are not going to rule over us. We want a king. Give us a king. Samuel mourned before the Lord. God blessed Samuel. Samuel was a man of great faith. Man of enduring faith. And then, of course, he says, and the prophets. And the prophets. And, you know, you look back at the stories of the prophets. Oh, wow. That was not a fun job. Just ask Jeremiah. Micaiah. Isaiah. Torn apart by Manasseh. Destroyed. These men hazarded their lives, but all they could do was give the word of God because God said, here's my message for the king, you give it to him. And what did those prophets do? They walked up before the king and said, thus saith the Lord. And it didn't matter what the king's response was. Some kings repented when they heard the word of the Lord. Some kings got very angry when they heard the word of the Lord and hunted the prophet. And some destroyed them, but they were faithful. To deliver the word of the Lord, but here in Hebrews chapter eleven, what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell you of all these men. And notice verse thirty-three. By faith these men, and as we've already read through many of these, who through faith subdued kingdoms, Midianites, Philistines, Ammonites wrought righteousness, stood for that which was correct, slew the prophets of Baal, restored Jehovah worship, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. You think of Daniel there. Quenched the violence of fire. Daniel 3, the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong. Gideon. Waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. You think there of Elijah and also Elisha, both of them raised a son of a woman back to life through faith. By faith, these men accomplished what was humanly impossible. And God has called us to remember them because of their faith, to be an example to us. Believe God's word. That's what faith is, folks. It's simply believing God's word. These men believed God's word, and the evidence of their belief was that they acted on it. They obeyed. We just quoted this whole chapter. It, it, well, I'm, 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 I could go on, but hang on. It could Come to the end of this chapter. Verse 39, because this verse is going to apply to them too, as well as next week's group. And these all, all, going back all the way to Abel. Everyone listed in this chapter. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith. When it says obtained a good report, it means they were approved of God. All these obtained a good report through faith, and they received not the promise. God, having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect or complete. There is something yet coming. And you'll have to come back next week. We'll we'll finish this chapter up, but I want you to note these two verses apply to all of these in this chapter that are mentioned. In fact, all of these in this chapter are mentioned by faith, by faith, by faith. And when you look at verse 35, 36, 37, and 38, this is a crowd who by faith were physically destroyed by faith come back next week and we'll take a look at that section let's pray father we thank you so much for this passage before us and lord the tremendous power demonstrated in the your power demonstrated in the lives of these men simply because they believed your word and obeyed. Lord, help us in help us likewise to believe your word. Lord, may we act upon what you have given us in your word. Lord, that when we are remembered, we are remembered for good. Lord, may our testimony be that We were people after your own heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we close. Take your handles, if you will, and let's turn to number 413. Number 413 will be our closing hymn today. Take time to be holy, number 413.